All right, good morning, everyone. H happy new month, happy November. This is right at the beginning of where I'm sure things are going to get a little crazy with the holiday season, and especially in light of last year, 2020 being canceled in effect, I'm sure it's going to be doubly uh, bustling and busy with a lot of family gatherings or whatnot. And so uh, before it gets too crazy, glad you're able to join us for worship. And obviously, uh, it's a privilege to share God's word. Uh, if you're new, I want to welcome you. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And as Jessica mentioned, uh, on the 21st, we'll continue to blast this out, but please keep uh, in mind for members that we do have an important members meeting. Uh, it's going to be the last one of the year, uh, a couple important things to vote through. But also, it's going to be our last one before our church, in a sense, uh, completes this long journey of what it's been like to replant. And so please, please, please make it a point to come out if you're a member. But also on that day, in light of just this uh, kind of week-to-week -week theater season for the city and the church uh, and the school, uh, please do note that we'll also be having our worship service in the cafeteria on campus on that day as well on the 21st. So look out for more information and a map will even show you where to go. Uh, but that's just a little bit of information for you to know. If you're just joining us, uh, we're nearing the end of a sermon series we've been going through titled The Family of God. Highly recommend you come out next week, uh, bring a friend if you know, because if there's anyone who has written on, thought about the topic of the church community and the family of God, Brett McCracken, he's the guy. Uh, our staff, uh, Tom actually knows him personally and we've talked to him about it. It's a topic that he really has wrestled through and so if you want to be blessed, obviously please do join us next week. And today is the third to last message. Um, he'll be speaking next week and the Pastor Tom will be closing it out the week after. Uh, but at this point, if you've been joining us through the series, I'm hoping that through God's word, you've been getting a little more flesh and color into what it looks like to be the family of God. Not only in definition that, hey, for the Christian family, it's not just biological, but it's literally, spiritually, anyone who calls himself a Christian, that as a body of Christ, we all have a role and function in the church. We're not supposed to just fill a seat. We have a calling and an assignment to serve and love members in the body. And if you, on one sense, consider what the Bible is saying about the family of God on a surface level, it seems a little too good to be true, right? It seems like this very ideal, harmonious community where everyone's supposed to love, everyone's supposed to serve, and nobody is uh, comparing, but everyone understands, like, I have a role and I have a function. And it's a really beautiful picture if you really think about it. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, wow, I'd love to be a part of that kind of utopia. Here's the problem, though. Talk to any family. Most Korean dramas are based off the fact that any family has drama, right? <laughs> family drama is a very understood two-word phrase that everybody can relate to. In fact, holiday season, I know for a lot of people, it spikes up. In one sense, the opportunity to meet family is exciting, but in another sense, it brought, draws up, oh man, my family, whenever we're together, it gets crazy, whether it's sibling drama, family drama, whatever it might be. And unfortunately, whereas you would love the family to be described by words like intimacy and, and connection and, and sharing, oftentimes the word that describes our family experience is things like conflict or tension or, or fighting or, or hurting one another. And that's just, we all understand, that's just kind of what it means to be part of a family that is comprised of sinners. Now, what I want to make clear is that the Bible, it certainly encourages certain ideals to be present in the family of God. But please recognize that the scriptures are not idealistic. They're not, uh, they're, it's very real. What do I mean by that? The Bible is very sober in that if you read the Bible, you will see embedded within the scripture and the commands that it kind of preemptively prepares you that you are going to inevitably experience relational conflict in the family of God. 
And so in light of our series, I want to really target on, therefore, what is the all-important ingredient that should be very understood as a Christian, but regularly revisited, and it's this thing, starts with the letter F, everybody loves to receive it, we all have a hard time giving it, it's forgiveness. Forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to our text, Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible, I think it will show on the screen. Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. We're going to see a scene. It's a famous parable that Jesus gives. Hopefully we can take a, a fresh angle in light of our series in the family of God as we kind of twist and turn and digest this idea of forgiveness and its vital importance in the family of God. So Matthew 18, starting from verse 21. This is the reading of God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, being Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. So in case you're sleepy this morning, I want to turn our attention to an animal called a hedgehog. Okay? Hedgehog. Yes, I said it. Hedgehogs are interesting creatures. If you don't know what a hedgehog is or what a hedgehog looks like, it seems very cute. But if you get close to a hedgehog, you're going to get hurt because they are most notably known for their spikes. Hedgehogs are little creatures that are surrounded by spikes that they have for self-defense. And Arthur Schopenhauer was a German philosopher, okay? He was studying human relational patterns, the way that humans seem to relate to each other. And particularly when it came to the idea of human intimacy, he came up with this very nice metaphor of how humans seem to function when it comes to getting closer. And he calls it the hedgehog's dilemma or the porcupine dilemma. And what the hedgehog dilemma is basically this. Hedgehogs have this kind of situation where when it gets cold, they want to come near and draw near together to get warmth. Makes sense. The problem is, though, when they get close together, they end up pricking each other and hurting each other with their spines, and so they end up separating again. So that's the dilemma. The dilemma is if they stay distant and isolated, they're going to be cold, they're going to be on their own, but they won't get pricked. But if they draw closer together, they might experience warmth, but they're going to get hurt. Hedgehog's dilemma. Now, while the hedgehog dilemma is a metaphor for human relationships in general, I think it perfectly applies to how maybe the Apostle Paul would describe the predicament that you're going to experience as a member of God's family within the church. 
See, many of us, we see the potential that the Bible describes regarding Christian community, don't we? And so especially in your earlier days when you hear about what the Christian church is supposed to be like and you hear descriptions of it, you come to the church excited because what, you're, you're, you want to experience relational warmth, right? The world is a cold, dark place. People are mean, self-serving, but the church is supposed to be warm and different and hospitable. So you come and maybe you experience some of it, but more often than not, you begin to face this hedgehog dilemma as well because why? A lot of our church experience, you get hurt. You start to get to know people. And you get pricked. And you see this perpetual hedgehog's dilemma happening for Christians in the church where you draw close to people, you get hurt. And some people, therefore, it's this perpetual cycle of, therefore, I look for a new group of hedgehogs. I get hurt there. A new group of hedgehogs, I get hurt there. And you repeat this vicious cycle. Now, why does this happen? And the Bible gives a simple answer. People are sinners. When you get closer to someone, in one experience, you can experience more warmth. There's increased intimacy, more relational harmony, hopefully. But on the other end, you are opening yourself to the great possibility and likelihood of being hurt or pricked by the sinful spines that all of us have. That the dilemma is nothing new because the, the church has always been filled with sinners. The family of God has always been filled with sinners. So the question is, in light of this series of the family of God, how do you deal with being in a family or a church where you're called to draw near to people and grow closer, but the closer and longer you remain, the more likely you're going to be sinned against and you're going to be hurt. And so to answer that, unlike a normal three-point sermon, we're going to actually journey through how Jesus answers Peter's question, which is very similar to the one I just asked. So in verse 21, in our text, it reads, so Peter comes up and he opens this conversation to Jesus. He says, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, when I did college ministry, I always knew whenever somebody asks a hypothetical question, 99% of the time they're asking for themselves. They're never asking for a friend. They're never asking for anyone else. It's for them. So obviously Peter, it's likely that he's asking this because there's probably someone that irked him. Someone that he was just straight annoyed by. Someone that bothered him, that made him angry, that regularly sinned against him enough for him to want to ask Jesus this question. And let me begin by saying, all of you have that person. If you take 20 seconds to let yourself go there, and I say, hey, is there anybody out there that's like just annoys you, irks you, sins against you? Doesn't a face pop up or an image? And you're just kind of like, ugh, that person just rubs me the wrong way. Same for Peter. Notice Peter, he doesn't say, Jesus, how often will an enemy sin against me? Because if it's an enemy, at least it's more black and white. Okay, I'm supposed to love my enemies. But he says, how often will my brother, someone that's supposed to be close to you, someone that's part of your family, those are the most painful, aren't they? An enemy is supposed to hurt you, but a brother is supposed to love you. And so it's not a stranger, it's a fellow brother in Christ. Potentially it might have been his literal, actual brother. He may have been one of the 12 disciples. But the point is this, someone he was in close proximity with probably was regularly hurting and sinning against him. And here's the thing, truth you need to remember. The ones you're close to in proximity, the ones that you spend a lot of time with, they're likely going to be the ones you get hurt by. They're likely to be the ones who you get sinned against by. And so Peter says, Jesus, how many pricks can I take? And I'm going to use that hedgehog analogy a lot. How many pricks do I take before enough is enough? Seven? Now, why is he saying seven? Peter, in his mind, he's giving a very godly number. Back then, if you didn't know the Jewish teaching, the rabbis would say, you're obligated to forgive someone three times. Only three times. After the third time, do whatever you want. 
for the fourth time, you want to just cut them out of your life, you don't want to deal with them, no problem. The Jewish rule was three times for forgiveness. So Peter doubles it, adds one, and says, seven? Should I go out of my way and do it seven times, far more than what is required? And Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. And a lot's been said about what is this number? Why is it 77? Some people read it as 77. Other people translate it as actually 70 times 7, which is 490. I don't think that's the point. Reminds me of uh, Avengers when Morgan Stark looks at Tony Stark and says, Daddy, I love you so much. I love you 3,000. Nobody goes, what does she mean by 3,000? Like, why not 3,500? The point is, it's a lot. <laughs> to her, that is a great insurmountable number. And so in the same way to a little girl, that 3,000 is a huge limitless number. Jesus is being hyperbolic and he's saying three to seven times. It's not easy, but it's in the realm of doable as a human. What he's implying, though, is the call for you, 77, 70 times 7, 490, is you don't put a cap to how much you ought to forgive someone. And here's where you have to understand something about Jesus. He very rarely is interested in the what and the how of Christianity. He is always, always interested, first and foremost, in the why. Why do anything, Christian? And the problem with a lot of church and religious people is you jump too quickly to the what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to do it, and you have no power and you have no spiritual resource because you have not dealt first and foremost with the why. And we live in a, especially in this day and generation, the motive matters a lot. And so Jesus, I think a lot of us were like Peter, we get caught up in that and we ask things like, what do I have to do? How do I have to love this person? But as we see in today's text and throughout scripture, a lot of the times what is addressed more is the why we ought to forgive. So he presents the why in the form of a parable. Verse 23 to 26, a famous one. He paints this picture. There's a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him and he owed him 10,000 talents and the servant could not pay, so the master ordered him to be sold, which his wife and children, all that he had, for payment had to be made. But the servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience, I'll pay you everything. So here's the first half of the parable. It's very straightforward. There is a servant who owes the king 10,000 talents, which it is not hyperbolic to translate that as a gazillion dollars. To give you perspective, records from the first century show the total annual revenue the total GDP collected by the Roman government from the entire nation of Israel in one year was 900 talents. So an entire nation accumulated 900 talents worth of money in a year. This guy owes 10,000. He owes more than 10 years worth of an entire nation's GDP. And why 10,000? In the same way that our currency, the biggest bill is 100. In Korea, the biggest currency is 50. The biggest expressible number in Greek was 10,000. That was the maximum. So when you say 10,000, you're not literally saying 10,000. You're saying 10,000 upon 10,000. That's why if you read in Revelation, it says there are 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels in heaven. There's a myriad of angels. It basically means a, a limitless, inexpressible number, and that's the ridiculous amount of money that is owed. And even though it is hyperbolic, yes, the implication is that the servant legitimately owes this, though. The story doesn't explain how he came across that kind of ridiculous debt, but the point is he actually owes it, though. Whatever he did, he owes the king this amount of money. It's understandably the king, he orders this man who cannot pay, sell him, sell his family into slavery, and for all eternity, basically, he's going to be paying it back because he's not going to do it in this lifetime. Now, pause briefly. Do you see, this makes no sense. The servant is saying, please be patient. I promise I will pay you back a gazillion dollars. He's delusional. You guys understand what's going on here. You don't 
pay back a gazillion dollars. You don't just go and make a gazillion dollars. And here's why I want to fill in the gap for us. The debt obviously is a metaphor for sin. The extent of our offense, the nature of our sin against God that we have committed, that we continue to commit, the point is it cannot be captured by numbers or words. That's why Jesus has to say it's like this. It's kind of like that because there's no true picture or word to describe just how insurmountable it is. And like this servant, a lot of us, when you first became a Christian or when the Spirit moves in your heart, hopefully it does today, we get the first half right, which is the Spirit gives a fresh conviction of your sin and then we feel humbled, we feel broken, we become filled with guilt and remorse. And up to that point, amen, that is good. We, like our brother Stephen prayed, we confess our sins. We recognize all that is good. The issue, though, is that like this servant, all of us naturally turn to the wrong solution, which is what? And therefore, I'll be better. I won't do this anymore, God. I won't commit that anymore, God. And whether it's God or with your spouse or with your dating relationship or a friend of yours, isn't that the very Asian solution? I'll fix this. I feel terrible, and I will be the solution to the problem. We tell ourselves, I can be better. Just be patient. Give me a chance, and I'll fix it. Well, first of all, let me ask, for those of you guys who've been Christian in any number of years, how has your progress been in fixing that problem that you promised God every week that you're going to fix? Because anything like mine is probably not fixed. And most importantly, that's not the gospel. That's religion. The point is, you can't pay it. You guys understand? It's an unfixable situation. There's no ounce of willpower in you that's going to make you be able to pay back what you owe. That's why if you still think you could fix yourself before God and make it right, you don't understand grace. You don't need grace if you can fix your problem. Grace steps in when you not only are filled with guilt, but you recognize, I can't pay it. That's where it's important to know. That's how the debt gets settled. Verse 27 is not out of justice or not out of, okay, so he's patient and he ends up making the money. He says out of pity or compassion, rather, the master released him and forgave him the debt. The master doesn't grant the request of giving him more time because that would have led to failure. Instead, out of the compassion of his heart, he forgives the debt altogether. Now, imagine you're the servant. You were seconds away from losing your entire family being sold as a slave for the rest of your life, and without deserving it, seconds later, your debt is forgiven. Now, a gazillion dollars seems a little too far-fetched. So a lot of people, the illustration, imagine your student debt. They're like, oh my God, my student debt is more than a gazillion. It makes no sense, right? But it's just so real for people. Or your mortgage, or, or whatever credit card debt you have. Imagine you're, you're, you're dealing with it, you open up your laptop, you're looking at those numbers, 40,000, 60, whatever it might be, and I'm walking by and I look at it and you're just feeling this weight of, this is going to take me 15 years to pay off. Oh my goodness, I feel shackled by this. And hey, can I see that really quick? I input a couple stuff, I pull on my credit card, and five seconds later the screen says paid for. No more debt. How would you feel? Or rather, I guess the question is how should you feel? How should you feel? Whatever the case is, I think you can make the argument, you'd be crazy to not be affected in some sort of way when you've experienced that level of forgiveness, right? And again, the driving question is, again, Jesus answering Peter's question, how much should I forgive? Or rather, why should I forgive so much? So the parable continues, verse 28. This is supposed to be shocking, by the way, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, and he began to choke him, saying, 
pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded, have patience with me. I'll pay you. But he refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, as often parables do, there's a couple similarities and contrasts that Jesus is making. First, note the similarities from the first half of the parable. This guy finds a fellow servant. In other words, somebody just like him. This is not someone on a lower social status. This is not someone that's too far-fetched for him to understand his situation. It's literally someone that is exactly like him, a fellow servant who he should have the greatest empathy and understanding for because he was literally in the same exact shoes. And the other clear similarity is that this servant also owes a huge debt, and he begs patience to pay it back. Now, here's the contrasts. The contrast is that compared to the 10,000-talent gazillion amount, this servant owes literally pennies. In comparison, it's pennies. It's chump change. Compared to the king's mercy, the servant reacts with pure anger, retribution, chokes the man, and the text continues saying, he says, go in prison until the debt is paid. Now, what's extra shocking for me is notice in verse 28, it makes it clear. This doesn't happen a day after, a week after. It's literally that he went outside and he saw the servant, which would very well indicate he's in the king's chamber experiences radical extreme mercy, goes out the doors, and five minutes later, he does the complete opposite. That's why in verse 31, the fellow servants see that, and they are just shell-shocked. They are greatly distressed, and they're like, we got to tell the king what we just saw. And why are they distressed? Because at 1 p.m., servant A begs for his life, and he experiences forgiveness. And at 1.30 p.m., servant A is choking someone over pennies. It doesn't make sense. It's a sheer level of inconsistency that any normal human would be distressed by. So they tell the king, and how does the king respond? In verse 32, the master summons him and says to him, you wicked servant. Forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. And verse 35, this is hard to swallow. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. There's the answer to the why. Peter asked Jesus, how much mercy should I show my brother? So to put it, how many times should I forgive my Spouse, my, my community group member, the person in the church, my small group member, my roommate. How many times and to what extent? And in the way that only Jesus can, he gives a very profound answer to the parable. He says, I'll tell you how much. Show as much mercy and forgiveness that you've been shown. That's what he says. That's the Christian formula. However it is, however much you think God has forgiven you, show that. Isn't that so double-edged sword? Because it works reverse too. However little you show shows how much you think you've been forgiven. And Jesus, he doesn't hold back. He says, and anything less than that, it's wicked. He doesn't just say, you're, oh, you're not a good person or, oh, you got to be nicer. He says, you're, you're just straight wicked. He says, a heart filled with unforgiveness is wickedness. In verse 35, I go just shy of making the proclamation, but 35 seems to be saying, if you do not have a heart that seeks to forgive, it can be a sign that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying it can be a sign because that's the level of language being used here. Because R.C. Sproul, a well-known theologian who passed away, he sums it up very well looking at this text. He says, and I quote, an unforgiving heart, it is an unforgiven heart. That's the correlation that Jesus himself always makes. A forgiven heart will forgive. An unforgiven heart 
does not forgive. Therefore, if you are an unforgiving person, maybe you've actually not been forgiven. It's not to be mean or harsh. It's just to state the facts of how a forgiving heart operates. And so on that, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on the language of Jesus. And in Ephesians and Colossians, they should both be up there. Every time he talks about the call to forgive, they always give the why. It says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So the why is always tied to not because the person is deserving, not because the person is so loving or forgivable, not even because the person, you know, whatever they did, they, they paid back. It's because of Jesus. Christians do these things not because of the person across from you. You do it because of Jesus. And if you lose sight of that, that person across from you is a prickly hedgehog and they're not going to give you a reason for you to do what God calls you to do. So that's the why. But forgiveness for a lot of us, it's such a massively hazy concept. So a little bit of the practical of the what then does it look like? And again, it's important for us to grasp because, again, I said we are a, last week, relatively younger church. But understand, if you're here for any amount of years, we will sin against each other. We will face a hedgehog's dilemma of constantly hurting each other. We will experience broken relationships if you haven't already. And so again, to describe this as he does in the parable, one of the best, clearest ways I think that Jesus describes the idea of forgiveness is by using the image and concept of debt, which a lot of us are familiar with. And just as the parable shows, one way to understand the need for forgiveness, he says, when someone wrongs you, okay, when someone wrongs you, what initially happens is you therefore cannot help but feel like now they owe you something that they need to pay for what they did. So the clearest example of this is if somebody punched me in the face, you know what happens in my heart? A negative transaction where now I want to punch them in the face. Nobody taught me to do that. It's just they have incurred a debt of one punch. I don't need two or three. I just need one more punch, and then we're good. They need to pay it back. Now, we're Asian-American, most of us. If someone punches us, I think here's what we'll do. Oh, it's okay. All good. All good. No, yeah, I'll be fine. But the debt is still incurred. So because we're more passive-aggressive by nature, you know what we do? We find every other way to pay this person back. Let me give you a personal illustration of this. Um, in my youth group years, my teenage years, wasn't making a lot of money. And uh, I, do, I play the drums. Not many people know that. But I actually wanted to be a, a guitar player. And totally unrelated story. The reason I ended up not playing guitar is I get really sweaty hands. And it just, like, starts dripping. And I got super insecure. And so God said no. So I didn't do it. But... I ended up saving $400, and I bought a beautiful acoustic guitar. It was a black guitar. I, I named her the Black Beauty, okay? I kid you not. Ibanez Black Beauty loved this guitar, took her to a retreat, and a long story short, a friend of mine, okay, not an enemy of mine, a friend of mine who I knew for a long time, he's like, can I play with it? And he ended up breaking it, dropping my guitar. And in that moment, something has happened. Friend or not, this man now owes me a debt. He broke my guitar, which will cost me, I call Guitar Center, about $100 to fix. $100 to a high schooler is 10,000 talents, right? Like, you don't come up with that kind of money. And so I have two options. I either make him pay for it, or I can forgive him, and I pay for it. Isn't that right? You only have two options in that situation. Here's the option that a lot of people think that they can do that simply does not exist, which is that that just vanishes. That it just disappears into thin air. That doesn't work. Someone has to pay it. That's why forgiveness, a lot easier said than done, right? 
Keller, he does a masterful work on this. He says, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek payment from the one who harmed you. In other words, please catch this line. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Voluntary suffering. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. So in other words, you see, when someone sins against you, they take something from you. It may not necessarily be money, but they can take from your reputation. They can take from your comfort. They can take from your ideal expectations. They can take from your plans. And when they do that, no matter what you think, there's two clear options you have. You either pay them back by taking from them what they took from you, okay? So what might that look like? Okay, this person punched me. I'm not going to punch him back, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell everyone how terrible of a person he is and affirm my hatred for them. Can you believe that person did this? I'm convinced that that's why the Asian church is so filled with slander and gossip because we can't actually confront people. So we have to, we, we ooze it out in other ways because that's just how it works. When someone pricks you, you want to pay them back. That's why it happens that way. Or the second option, you can forgive them, which by definition means you choose not to pay them back and you absorb the cost. The third option, again, that simply does not exist is that that relational debt just disappears without some sort of payment. So therefore, forgiveness is not easy. I'm not trying to pretend like it is. I remember back when I was, believe it or not, so I was like in eighth grade. I thought I was like so godly. And when older brother and sister would be like, it's so hard to forgive, I think they're so ungodly. Like, dude, WWJD, man. Oh, Jesus, dude, just forgive them. Are you serious, right? That's what the Bible says. Easy for you to say, until you get pricked. Isn't that true? Forgiveness is extremely costly. For example, a lot of you guys, I think, would consider me your friend. Let's say you got the new iPhone. We went outside holding my son Ezra. I drop it and your iPhone shatters. I don't care how close we are. Something's awkward now. <laughs> like, you'd much rather have an enemy or a stranger do that because now you could re require payment. But in the church? Like the family? Like my greatest fear is if in the parking lot a, a brother or sister in Christ like rear ends me. That'd be the most awkward encounter ever. Oh, it's okay. But it's not. But it's okay. But it's not. You know, it's like that, like, somebody got to pay for it. But it should, You know, it's just that weird thing. And so, a lot of people, they find other ways. So here's how you know a couple of signs that you're probably not really trying to truly forgive. Because it is a process. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. But here might be some telltale signs that you're not even struggling to do it. Number one, if whatever this person or whoever this person is, whatever it has, they, they have done to you, if therefore now you have made the conscious choice, I will avoid them and I will be cold to them at all costs. And you tell yourself, but I've forgiven them. I just never want to talk to them again. You're not truly trying to forgive. You're paying them back by saying you are no longer allowed in relationship with me. That's payment. That's retribution. Two, you gossip and talk behind their back to others to affirm your anger and your bitterness. Can you believe this fool? Can you believe what this person did? Can you believe this sister? Please feed my revenge, right? Or three, and here's one that people, it's so subtle. It sounds so evil, but it happens. You allow your mind and your heart, like an Instagram reel, to replay the things that bother you most about that person every time you see them. Don't you hate to admit that that happens? This brother, who I won't name, who broke black beauty, okay? I thought, hey, no problem. It's all good. Every time I would see him, all I would see is the, the instant replay of him dropping my guitar. It's shattering. 
and my hatred being renewed. Every single time. And I let that, it was almost gratifying to remind myself how angry I'm at that person because of what they have done to me. And if you let that play free reign, rather than taking your thoughts captive, as Paul says in Corinthians, you're not trying to forgive. You're relishing in how pissed off you are at that person. Or fourth, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, you rejoice in the sufferings of others. What do I mean by that? It sounds so sinister, doesn't it? But you want that person to experience pain or go through some bad experience so they can feel what you felt. And that goes to many deeper layers. But the simplest example of that would be, for example, let's say I come up walking to the stage and then I trip and I fall. And let's say our administrator, Jessica, looks at me and she starts laughing. And let's say seconds later she goes up and she trips and she falls. I'll be so happy. <laughs> like, That's right. Ha-ha. Right? What's that doing? You want payment. You go through what I went through. It's not forgiveness. And as evil as those things sound, I wonder if it's resonating because it feels so natural because you're so justified that you deserve payment. Is that not true? So then, how do you forgive? How do you bypass that natural human instinct to absorb it rather than dish and shell it out when it feels so unjust? It's so expensive. The cost is so great. And this is where the Bible makes it clear forgiveness, it's not a human act. Your flesh cannot forgive on its own. You understand that? Your flesh does what I just described. That's why forgiveness, it is a deeply spiritual act that the Lord's prayer includes because literally disciples are like, Jesus, what's something we have to ask for every single day? And he says, every day pray for this. You know one of those lines in Matthew 6, 12 is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know what that means? It means today people are going to prick me, piss me off, and irk me. Give me the spiritual strength to give them the grace and mercy that I know you're showing me not just back then at the cross, but even today, help me to be a forgiving person. Now let me briefly address two groups of people on both ends of the hedgehog dilemma, okay? On one end, I call you guys the young hedgehogs. Fresh, right? Like your, your pricks are like very tiny. You haven't really experienced relational hurt yet. Someone's sinning against you, the worst thing that is is like, I don't know, they like give you the cold shoulder and you're like, oh, I feel so sinned against, right? And you're like eager. You're, you're seeking to immediately draw closer to people. You want to plug into community. You're desiring intimacy. And in the church, you get really confused when people seem relationally distant or jaded. If that's you, the encouragement I would give is to realize it is an inevitability, not first and foremost that others will hurt you, because that's yeah, we hear that before. But I actually think gospel maturity happens when you realize you're going to hurt others. You're a sinner. It'd be like a porcupine looking at other porcupines and be like, oh, everyone's so spiky. Like, look at the mirror. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. You're not going to mature in the family of God until you realize you hurt just as much, if not more, as the way you've been hurt. You have sinful spikes in the same way that others do. And this applies across the spectrum, whether friendship, whether marriage, whatever it is. If you always think others are to blame for relational conflict, that you're never at fault and it's always them, you have to wrestle with the potentially hard but biblical reality that I am a sinner. Like really understand and believe that. And the challenge is fight to not get jaded, but in a sober and wise manner. Do not get shell-shocked. When you face in the family of God what the Bible says will happen, which is you're going to face situations where you have to forgive. But the other group, which might be more applicable to our church, I think we have a lot of uh, people who have been in the church for a while, a lot of people who maybe have been hurt a lot. 
And so this is the group, what do I call them? The wounded porcupines. Those who've been pricked enough times. And so what actually happens, as with anyone who gets pricked enough, you'd rather remain in the cold. You'd rather remain more distant. Maybe you're like the Apostle Paul or Peter thinking, how many times is enough, God? I've put myself out there. I try to grow closer to people in the church. It always ends in hurt or disappointment. And it's sad because the longer you are in the church and in the community, the more scarred and wounded people you will see that are out there. That's why some people in the faith, they just give up on church altogether. Like, what's the point? All I face is getting hurt and pricked. And that's where I'm convinced when you're younger and more excited and fresh to join and invest in community, it may be because you're not really hurt yet. You haven't actually been hurt yet. But for those who have, I think the text would say, nothing novel, seek to forgive in the way that God has forgiven you. If it feels like an endless amount of times, still forgive. Forgive because that might be the blockage in your spiritual walk with God. You might be trying to point to other things, but God might be saying literally the chasm between me and you is a bitter and unforgiving heart. And it will never be reinvigorated with the warmth of community and God until you deal with that. Because guess what? We can do a whole sermon on this. Both secular psychology and Christianity affirm and agree. Unforgiveness, it is the most subtle form of bondage. It literally traps you. People always think, oh, forgiveness, it's about the other person. No. Forgiveness, it's about you being trapped in your bitterness. That's why people say, forgive your father even though he's not here. It's not about him. It's about you. You're literally trapped in the bondage and self-proclaimed jail cell of unforgiveness when you hold on to a grudge. That's why Jesus says, I liberate you from that. I liberate you from that bondage. In the real world, I think the hedgehog dilemma, it plays out by a growing and yet understandable distancing that happens between people who are hurt or fear being hurt. And so in the church, the family of God, how is it to be different in the world? We're given this resource and weapon called forgiveness. I'm confident in the same way that the Iron Man suit needs the arc reactor to function, we need forgiveness. The family without forgiveness, it's just a shell. The vitality of the church and the community of God over the long term, it runs or dies on the forgiving and the forgiving culture of the church. Which leads to the closing, which is the greatest example of forgiveness. Why of forgiveness? Can you think of anyone else who had to absorb the cost of sin and pay for the debt of someone who wronged them? Because at this whole time, you're probably thinking of yourself, right? All these people who wronged me. But can you think of somebody else, right? Like, what would you do if somebody sinned against you And you contributed literally nothing to it. Now, I say this very carefully, but I was talking to a a counselor. The counselor was telling me, he was saying the first thing, any marital couple you have to get them to understand, if you ever want there to be true freedom, is to understand that everyone has a part to play. I was like, what do you mean by that? Give me an example. And he says, okay, this might be extreme, but even in case of infidelity, infidelity. Now, this is what he said, okay. He told me in case of infidelity, say the husband cheats on the wife. 99% husband fault. But what he'll say is he asks the wife, would you be willing to admit that despite the husband taking the brunt of the blame, obviously, that I have a part to play in this. Isn't that so counter to how we think? We like to make blame very black and white. We like to make pricking very about them and not me. But I think the way relationships work, it's always two-way streets. It takes two 
to think. Even if someone has the majority of the blame, we still contribute. Why? Because we're still sinners. And so you can make the argument, sure, I could be more loving. I could be more patient. But what if someone was legitimately 100% wrong? Like the counselor looks at it and it's like, you know, I usually say it's two to tangle. But this one, it's actually all your fault. Like 100%. Like they, they did nothing. That's where a lot of Christians, they look at the cross. And they say, it makes no sense. The cross, it makes no sense. They say things like, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive? Like, why, why did he have to die that gruesome death? Let me ask you, if someone deeply wrongs you, deeply wounds you, and says, why don't you just forgive? Dude, it's not a big deal. Just forgive. Does that work? No, because it goes back to the solution. There's only two things that can happen when there's a deep offense. Either you make them suffer for what they did, or you refuse to make them suffer, and then you suffer in order to forgive them. There's only two options. That's the predicament and the dilemma of our God. I've been sinned against. People ask me why I don't just let it vanish. Easy for them to say. I got two options. Either I pour out suffering on them, which I can do, which is right and just, or I voluntarily suffer in order to forgive. There's only two options. And on the cross, we see that God made a decision. Because you're not on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. The voluntary suffering, another word to say forgiveness of the Son of God, who absorbed the debt of not 100 denarii, but 10,000 upon 10,000 talents, which we will spend all eternity trying to actually grasp how serious our sin really is. Right? I love that song, the old school song, and I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I think today a lot of Christians, we don't think the cost is that great. We really don't. But the cross still stands true that it clearly was great if that was the cost that was required to pay for it. And on the heart of the gospel is the voluntary suffering of the perfect sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, who bore the cost of forgiveness for your and my sin. Now, I know most of us know this. The issue is that we don't fight to believe it by faith. If you don't exercise your faith in the forgiveness you've received through Jesus, you simply will never be able to be a forgiving person because the cost will be too great. Your reputation matters too much. Your comfort matters too much. It has to be paid for. And here's the basic principle that I think Christianity would affirm. You cannot give what you do not have. You can't give what you don't have. So if I tell you today, as a Christian, give out $100 worth of forgiveness, if you don't have any money to give, it's just a concept to you. It's a nice Sunday sermon. Oh, that's what Christians should do. That'd be beautiful. But you go and you collect all your debts. Why? Because you are running on empty. You have no spiritual resources. Following that analogy, one thing I love about Venmo, Venmo, for some reason, I don't know if you guys relate. You know Venmo, when you open it, it tells you how much money you have in your Venmo balance. And for some reason, I think Venmo money, even though it's real money, I see it as like extra money. You guys feel me? So when my Venmo balance is like $400, $500, for some reason, I feel rich. And I'm just like giving, dishing it out. I'm like, hey, you want me to buy you food? I'll buy you food. Let me boba. I feel generous. Uh, people ask me to pitch in. I, I give a little more. I tip a little harder. No problem. But you know when my Venmo balance is at zero? I am the stingiest person on the planet. Why? Because I feel like I got nothing to give. Spiritually speaking, it is the same way. Some of you sitting here, your spiritual bank accounts, 
have been sitting at empty for a long time because you've never received a deposit from the wealth of God's grace and forgiveness in your heart. And you jump too quickly to the what and the how. So how should I spend my spiritual money? What am I supposed to do with my spiritual money? And with an empty account, I would tell you, why don't you fill your account first? You can't spend what you don't have. And if you want to know how do you deposit without turning it into religion, it is to use the Jesus-proven given formula for answering the why. In the same way that you feed off your anger and bitterness by saying, how could that person, why would that person do this to me? Why should I forgive them? As cliche as it is, you always flip it and do that gospel transformation. Why should Jesus forgive you? Why should Jesus continue pouring to you? People prick you. You pricked Jesus so much more today. And again, that's not just some Christianese saying. That is legitimately the way to tap into power because forgiven people are a forgiving people. Reconciled people are reconciling people. And Christianity says you can only live out what you truly believe that you are and you can only give that which you have received. So including the family of God is a group of hedgehogs. Please believe it. Please know it. If you expect anything less, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. But that's where the fertile soil for the gospel of forgiveness, it is ripe to be practiced and for us to grow in our love and understanding of who Jesus is and the type of family he calls us to be. So let me lead us in prayer as we close. If you could take a moment as I invite the praise team up, maybe one question you can ask yourself and reflect on is, how's your spiritual account balance right now? Like when I even say the idea of, hey, can you go out and be kind, loving, tender, merciful, forgiving to people? Do you feel like I got... I got none of that to give. That could be telling. Maybe you're running on empty and what you need to not hear is just a bunch of more things you have to do and you need to hear more about what's been done. Have you been a, a brash, critical, bitter person recently? Unforgiving. Your spikes are a little spikier than they normally are or need to be. Ask God to reveal his grace to you again and again. Pray that we could be a church that displays this type of forgiveness in the day-to-day -day as we grow as a family of God. So can we take a minute to pray and then I'll close for us.